He's typing something now in the chat. He says, I said, uh, I'm in the meeting. Let me know if you have any issues. And he just typed in the word issues. <laughs> and now it's time to sit back and enjoy the two true freaks internet radio broadcast. Stop it! Disenfranchised by the modern comics industry, producer Paul Spitaro, Dr. Bill Robinson, and Scott H. Gardner now ply the time stream in a never-ending quest to rediscover and reconnect with that unique brand of fun and excitement that can only truly be found in good old-fashioned, randomly selected comic book back issues. Journey with them now. Back. Back to the bins. I got nowhere else to go! I got nowhere else to go! I got nothing else. Fred is connecting to audio. Is he showing up on your screen? Uh, it says connecting to audio. There's no picture yet. Well, I am yet. Well, I don't even. I don't now. even know if. Can you yeah, see I can me? hear you. I can't can you see you, me? but I can hear you. They no. Can't see me. All right. So, so find out where the. Uh, that must be the lovely Mrs. Hembeck helping us. That's yeah, correct. Hi. Find <laughs> out where the visual is. There uh, down. I start video here. Yeah. I think down. Yeah, down at the bottom. There you there go. We go. There we go. Yay. Okay. Sorry Good about the delay you. there. I didn't know. I thought it was all set up from the last time I did this, but apparently not. You know what? In my job, I'm on Zoom probably three or four times a week, and I have issues like this all the time. <laughs> so, okay, you know, especially since you're only occasional. It's good to see you. How you doing? Yeah, good to see you guys, too. Let's see. Now, I see Scott over there in the corner. Hi. So you're Paul. Hi, Scott. Hi. It's very nice cool. to speak to you, sir. Yes, yes. Thank I, you. I appreciate the interest enough to, you know, drag me into this. Not dragging no, I'm, You know what I'm saying. You know what I'm, uh, this is purely being nosy. Uh, yeah. But but I know we and I know we talked about this last time. We're both in New York, but I think you're somewhere towards uh, somewhere north of me. I'm in Long Island, so I'm just curious what, where you are. Oh, I I grew up on Long Island, but I'm in uh, Wappingers Falls now, which is near Poughkeepsie. Okay. Are you familiar uh, with Poughkeepsie? I kind of know where it is, but it's, I'm not. Yeah, it's <laughs> about. I know. I'm not saying you had to come here and you know take part in the parades, <laughs> but it's about, uh, you know, uh, 60, 50, 60 miles away, I guess, from New York City. Yeah. Well, I have, where, uh, where on Long Island are you? Well, I, I grew up in Brooklyn. I okay. moved in 96 to East Meadow. Okay. And a year ago, my wife and I bought a house and moved to Plainview. Okay. That's, they're all Nassau County, right? Yeah. Yeah. Where'd you, where did you originally come from? Yapank. Okay, yeah, Bank so in Suffolk That's County. a ways out there. That's a ways it's, out there. It's, it's, half, it's right next to Middle Island, which, of course, is right in the middle. So it's not way out. It's just out compared well, to... When, when, when my mom and dad abandoned me in Brooklyn and moved out to Island, they went to Setauket. So oh, my yeah. God. That's far out. Yeah. Yeah, there, I think that's, that's is on that? the LIE. It's exit 62 on the LIE. But then is once you get off of the LIE, it's probably about a 20-minute ride from there to, there to where the yep. their house yeah. was. 
I think we were actually six. I forget. Yeah. Well, it depends on if you were north or south. I because my experience with Yapank is always on the uh, Sunrise Highway, not on the LIE. Oh yeah, yeah, Sunrise Highway. Sunrise Highway. What a name. <laughs> I never really thought about it. I just grew up thinking, oh, yeah, Sunrise Highway. Well, I, I never grew you know, when I thought about all these names, I, they just all sounded normal to me. And then I realized most of the names out on Long Island are, you know, Native American uh, yep. things, yep. which I had no clue. I was totally exactly. ignorant of it. So it's good to good to see you again. Good to get a chance to talk to you. I appreciate you coming on. And just, you know, I'll tell you now, you're welcome to come on anytime you choose. You tell me, hey, Paul, I'm interested in talking some funny books again. I will set up another meeting. Okay. So, I mean, you know, sure. Uh, but in the meanwhile, I'm going to introduce us to whoever might be listening. And hello, everybody, and welcome to Back to the Bins. Uh, I'm not sure. We actually have a video recording. I'm not sure if we're just going to go audio on the po podcast or if we're going to actually try our first time to do a video uh, presentation. But I'm here. If you look at the screen, you could see I'm with my usual or one of my usual podcasting partners, Mr. Scott Gardner. Hello. And we are joined today uh, for the second time on this show by Mr. Fred Hembeck, who is giving us uh, the pleasure of his company today. Welcome Hi, aboard, everybody. Mr. Hembeck. Uh, uh, thank you, Paul. Hi, everybody. It's good to be back. It's good to have you back, and I appreciate you coming back. If you, I don't know, you know how much you... Uh, you know how many of these interviews you do but last time around we did the standard interview and when it ended i kind of gave you the format for the show and said would you be interested in coming on and you said yes and it took i don't know three four years whatever oh but here you are <laughs> yeah. yeah i i uh i've done about maybe a half a dozen of these maybe a few more so oh, it's not well. like yeah yeah I figured you'd be in heavy demand, to be quite honest with you, because, uh, you know, I, we talked about this already. I don't want to go too much into it, but, uh, you know, I I can't say I grew up with your stuff because mm -hmm. you didn't, you did, you know, you're older than me, but not so much older than me that I grew up with it. Right, uh, right. I would I say some, sometime in the 1970s, I started to find your work and enjoyed it from then and continue to this day whenever I see anything. And I was just showing Scott with the picture I had purchased from you. Uh, oh, yeah, several years back, which okay. I I had that at my office at work, and I just recently brought it home because I hadn't been in the office as much because of the pandemic, and I decided I was going to hang it up in my home office. So I brought it home, and my wife said, "Do you really need another picture in your office?" But I said, "Yes, I do." <laughs> well, you can always get some of the, get rid of some of those wedding photos and stuff, and put it up well, there. We got those two. They're up there. <laughs> Hey, I'm only joking. I'm, I can't get away with that. You know, you can only get away with so much. I know. I understand. <laughs> I understand. So, uh, just uh, are, are you uh, actively putting out any work at this point? Um, I'm actively oh, the, putting stuff up for sale on eBay, but I'm not getting stuff published, if that's what you mean. You know, I, that is actually what I, mean. I, I, I do see the stuff on, on eBay. Yeah, that's pretty. That keeps me busy. Plus, you know, people commissioning me stuff from me. Mainly cards, actually. I, you know, I, when the pandemic came along, I decided I didn't really want to go to the post office that often. So I, you know, pretty much uh, just did uh, sketch cards because I can put them in an envelope, take them out in the front yard, put them in the mailbox, and let the carrier pick them up. Yeah, that's so what that's I do. Cool. Actually, uh, when I sell 
the occasional item on eBay. I print up the shipping label from my computer and even, you know, bigger than cards, but I put it in, put it in the mailbox and the mailman takes it and it gets delivered. It's nice that's and good. easy. Yeah, that's good. So, but uh, yeah, I do see your uh, stuff on eBay periodically and I keep thinking, eh, I got to get some more of that stuff because, yeah, it's, 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 you know, the a- bottom line is your stuff is just fun. It, it really is. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I, I, I always get a, you know, a, a level of enjoyment over the, uh, the way that you draw them, you know, the, the, the style that you put them in. And mm-hmm. usually I, one, one of the things I'm just looking, you know, if you see on my background picture, I have one of, one of your, uh, I do shots. see. Yes. And like, I get a kick out of Superman's tired eyes in the picture. Like oh, that's okay. just really of, of the, of everything on there. That's what grabs me. And that's what pulls me in. Yeah. Yeah. I, I people, the characters expressions, I think get people. I think that's one of the reasons why people like my stuff because usually the characters are either looking directly at you or they're having some sort of a, an expression that's like Superman. There's like, ah, oh, that kind of expression. <laughs> yeah. I always used to like best the, uh, the, the punchline panel where it was usually the character was kind of grimacing and there was like one little dot of sweat coming off. Yes. I, I love those. I love yeah. those. Yeah, that, that's uh, trust me. I didn't come up with that. That's a tried and true tradition. But I took it over, and that's uh, I'm glad it's working for me. Uh, so, for what it's worth, uh, as I said, I had invited uh, Fred to come on quite some time ago, and you know, time and busyness, yep. and some people are out there having grandchildren. It doesn't. It's not as easy. Always easy to find the time to do these things. That's true. Uh, and I have seen pictures of you with your granddaughter, and it's always always cool to see. Yeah. Uh, but you know, we're finally on, and and you basically said, you know, pick whatever books you want: Superman, Family, Lee Ditko, Lee, yeah. Lee Kirby, whatever. And you know, my inclination was knowing the style of things that you have kind of riffed on in in the past is to pick something a little offbeat and a little silly. On the other hand, then the other on the other end of things, I was thinking, let me go with something that has a little gravitas to it. So I think I kind of landed on the perfect thing as far as I was concerned with uh, Fantastic Four number five, which is the introduction of Doctor Doom. So it definitely has gravitas, but it's also kind of one of the dopiest stories where they're going after Blackbeard's treasure. So I thought the combination might really work well for you. Yeah, yeah, very much so. And that and that Superboy story you picked. That's that one, Scott. That's for you. Oh, Scott! Thank you, Scott. That that's uh, that's one of the stupidest things I've ever read. <laughs> but uh, you know, when I when I was a kid, I yes. I enjoyed... But there's a reason. There's a reason I picked that one. <laughs> was that the reason? There is a good reason behind it. Or beyond that, so well, that it reason? was. Yeah, it was really. Well, it's. I I think it's really representative kind of 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 that era and and that title and that character but there's there's actually a deeper reason that i'll I'll definitely get into when we when we start talking about it um i just want to say real quick um for for our listening audience paul just kind of dove right into this pretty much the minute that we got mr hembeck on the call so i i I didn't get a chance i I just want to take a minute please please bear with me I just got to butter your bread a little bit because this is the first time I'm getting to speak to you personally. And, and I'm a little bit younger than Paul, not by much, but I'm a little bit younger than, than him. And I really do feel like I, I grew up with your stuff. I used to really look forward to your strips in the Daily Planet um, when they would have those. 
Mm -hmm. And um, I, as soon as Paul called me up and, and I saw his background, I didn't have time to do it myself, but I wanted to hunt up. I actually know what my personal favorite one is. And it was the one where um, Batman's talking to an old timer and the old timer says something like, I'm really looking forward to our upcoming team up. And he goes, well, I'm teaming up with you. What are you talking about? And he goes, yes. And the brave and the old, of course. And I've, I've always loved that was my personal oh, favorite. My so. So I'm trying not to fanboy, but I just wanted okay. to tell you it's an honor to, to get to talk to you. Um, I, I've really long been an admirer of your work. So well, thank cool. you, thank you, Scott. I I, I I never tire of hearing that, and uh, I don't <laughs> hear it often you. enough. No, but I mean that's very nice. I appreciate it. <laughs> Absolutely, so just on the heart. To the extent that you're not familiar with our format, what we do is, again, we pick random books generally. Uh, we give a synopsis of the story, and then we discuss it, whatever impressions we have and wherever the conversation may lead us. And then we wrap up each book by giving it letter grades, like a school grade. We grade the cover, the interior art, the story, and then we give an overall grade. And I always feel the need to explain that the overall grade does not necessarily have to be in line with the other grades, because sometimes the total is more than the sum of its parts, and sometimes it's less than the sum of its parts. So it's, you know, however you feel fit to uh, grade an individual story is totally uh, subjective. All right. I'll do my best. And as our guest, I'm going to give you the choice of whether you'd rather do the Superman book first, or, or the Superboy book, rather, or the uh, Fantastic Four book. Uh, Superboy. Oh, he just made my night. <laughs> there you go. Thank you. Thank you. All right. Well, here we go. Give me just a moment to pull up my synopsis here. Okay, here we go. All right. Oh, okay, I'm, so I'm going to interrupt for one before you get a chance to do it, because I'm just curious, because I think I know the answer for the book I have. Have you ever uh -huh. had a chance to do a cover sketch of this book? Of the FF5? The FF5, I'm pretty confident the answer is absolutely yes, but I'm not sure about this Superboy one. Oh, I see what you're saying. You know, I actually never did do uh, FF5, but, and I've oh, really? never done, no, really, I know, I've done four, three, you know, a bunch of them, but I don't know, somehow that one escaped. Really, I'm very um, surprised. I figured that would be a commission at some point. Yeah, yeah, no one ever, never, never asked me to do it, and it was a little on the more complicated side, so I didn't do it on my own. Let me take a look at what am I looking at here? Yeah, yeah, I can see that. Yep. Nope. Didn't do the Superboy either. Although that's the cover, by the way, is perhaps the best thing about the book. But uh, <laughs> yes, yes, I love that cover. <laughs> it's a very good cover. Yeah, that'd be an easier cover to do. Kurt Swan covers were always easy to do. They were so they were perfect, but they were also very simple. Right. And sometimes the Kirby covers like that Doctor Doom one. There's a lot of things going on. There's a big circle there. There's little people running around. So I think, you know, you don't really get a good uh, representation of the of the Fantastic Four themselves. So unless someone was going to ask me, I never did get around to doing that one. Now, I do may you, be asking uh, you at some point. Do you take commissions? Uh, yeah, but I'm not really doing the covers anymore. I'm just doing really oh, no? cards okay. and occasionally you know, um, larger drawings. But I kind of said, oh, I'm, I'm tired with the covers. I did a lot of them. <laughs> Holy mackerel. Sometimes I wonder about how I managed to do all of them, but haven't done any in a few years. Oh, all you got to do is do a uh, Google search of uh, Fred Hamburg covers, and you, <laughs> there's a ton oh, of them wow. out there. I never thought of doing that. Yeah, okay. 
I keep copies of all of them, but you know, they're kind of spread all around and stuff. But hey, how about that Superboy story? All right, so here we, here go, we go, folks. All right, strap in, everybody. All right, so we are looking at Superboy, The Adventures of Superman, when he was a Ute, number 115. This is the September 1964 dated issue. It was actually on sale on the stands, according to Mike's Amazing World of Comics, on July 2nd, 1964. Cover price was a mere 12 pennies. Cover was by Kurt Swan and George Klein, and it depicts Superboy, and there's an atomic explosion <laughs> going off in the pit of his stomach uh, as two scientists look on as a, uh, what, what do you guys call this? This was not an x-ray machine. I, at least I don't think so. They, they had a, there was a, a name for this type of device before x-rays. Was it fluoroscope? Am I thinking of the right thing? Is that what it was called? That sounds right. Yeah, it sounds, that sounds right. Looking, yeah, they're looking at his guts, basically, on this fluoroscope to see what's going on. And while this is happening, he's actually emitting a, a burst of fire from his mouth. And the cover just says, featuring the atomic Superboy. And one of the scientists is saying, Superboy, I'm sorry we asked you to swallow those two new chemicals so we could observe the reaction in your stomach. It is causing an atomic explosion. Every time you breathe, you'll emit nuclear fire. <laughs> So, yeah, you know the kind of story you're in for already with this one. Uh, so we are looking at the cover featured story, which is the first tale in the book entitled, just like the cover says, The Atomic Superboy. Uh, now, despite a thorough Internet search, I could find no writer credits for this particular story, although I have my suspicions and we're going to talk about that in the notes section. So the only uh, credit that there actually is out there for this one is the artist, which was George Papp. Uh, and also the editor. This was during the Mort Weisinger era. So, so <clears throat> pardon me, synopsis as follows. In a government laboratory, two noted scientists face a baffling problem. Mixing these chemicals should create the first nuclear blast in history, says one. Such a discovery could be used to benefit the world. Yes, the other man of science says, but the force might be titanic enough, uh, excuse me, titanic enough to blow up all Earth. Uh, if only we had some unbreakable crucible to try it in first. Like people, do they really talk like this? <laughs> so I'm thinking, hey, let's get Mikey. I, I mean, Superboy, uh, says the first scientist. So the call goes out to Smallville Police Chief Parker to get in touch with the Boy of Steel on their behalf. Later, we see teen, uh, teen Clark Kent. He's sitting on a couch at Lana Lang's place. No parents in sight but is apparently so bored he'd rather stare off into space with his supervision than try to get some of that, you know, crazy uh, yet sweet uh, redhead action. Uh, he notices his signal lamp back at the Kent homestead blinking, which indicates Chief Parker's trying to get in touch with him. And so presently the Boy of Steel answers the summons of the two scientists and they give him the skinny on their plan. Knowing he has a super cast iron stomach, they'd like him to ingest the chemicals so that the explosion will be contained inside his indestructible body. Always willing to help science, the lad does as they ask, but on the surface of the moon where there's no danger to Earth, um, except possibly horrifying catastrophic devastation should something go wrong and the moon be destroyed, and I have a little note here, see Planet of the Apes Cataclysm Maxi Series, for instance. Uh, but of course, none of that's ever mentioned. 
Superboy downs the chemicals and a resounding boom goes off inside him. I'm thinking, no worries, super dude, we've all been there. But when the boy of steel opens his mouth, why, a destroying blast of nuclear fire came out of my mouth, he says. Yes, the lad now has nuclear fire breath anytime he opens his yap. So he goes back to Earth and the scientists take a look at his tummy under a fluoroscope and they see an ongoing nuclear reaction that looks just like a mushroom cloud continuing to occur in his stomach. Superboy leaves to try to find a way to halt the reaction and the scientists promise to continue to work on the problem too. A janitor, having overheard all of this, figures he can cash in by selling the story to the press. Meanwhile, Superboy tries quenching the fire by diving into the deep sea, but all that does is endanger sea life. He flies out into the void of space, but the vacuum doesn't seem to help extinguish the blaze either. So he returns to Earth and, concerned over Lana Lang's ongoing suspicions that Clark Kent is Superboy, decides to go to school, even though he knows one slip of his lip means a plume of devastating nuclear fire will burst forth. Clark manages, however, to convince Lana and his teacher that he has laryngitis and then is excused. So then he zooms to the remote Arctic, where he sets global warming in motion by melting the polar ice cap with his flame breath. While this is going on, the story break, uh, excuse me, the story breaks about Superboy's dilemma and Lana Lang rushes to the Kent General Store to confront Clark. Funny, both he and Superboy can't speak just at the moment, isn't it, Clark? But Clark does answer her and says he's so sick of her crap that he's not going to speak to her anymore and she leaves kind of perplexed. Superboy tries to go out on his regular routine, but it quickly becomes apparent that he is frightening people and that he's potentially putting everyone, indeed the entire planet, in danger. So he leaves the Earth and heads to one of the strangest worlds in the universe, a world where the people are friendly, fire-breathing humanoids that live on a burning hot planet. As he zooms in, he hears the cries of a woman whose husband has fallen into the molten lava ocean. The lava can't burn him, thinks Superboy, but he can drown just as Earth people drown in water. So Superboy fishes him out and using his fire breath gives him the equivalent of mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. The man lives! The fire people are all grateful to Superboy. And Superboy is grateful to discover that his act of heroism used up the last of the chemical reaction. No more fire breath! So Superboy returns to Earth, where, later is Clark Kent, he is again talking to Lana Lang, who wonders if she's been tricked. How can you say that, Lana, when you heard me speak to you, he asks. But what he doesn't tell her is that while she heard him speak to her, with his back turned to her as he stocked the shelves in his dad's store, he was using, in fact, wait for it, super ventriloquism! Yeah. Uh, Which... I'm pretty sure would still require you to open your mouth, but, you know, I'm not a ventriloquist, so maybe not. Anyway, the end. Now, you're probably wondering, as Mr. Hembeck is, why in the hell did he pick such a goofy story? So there's a couple of different reasons for this, but probably the biggest one is that even though this appears to be a pretty dopey, self-contained story that's not particularly relevant, believe it or not, This story gets referenced, what year did I say this was? 64. So four years, just shy of four years later, in the August 1968 Action Comics issue number 366. Now, this was the final chapter 
of an excellent story that I covered ages ago called, um, well, it doesn't really have a name, but it's where Superman catches Virus X from Krypton and he's dying of basically super leprosy. So in this final chapter, he's in a space coffin being blasted into the hottest sun in the universe. He's basically, he's, he's intent to die. He, he knows he's going to die and this is, he wants to be incinerated. So as he's approaching this hottest sun in the universe, the people um, of this fire planet actually see him headed in and they realized, oh my goodness, he's actually been cured and doesn't even realize it. So they save him, essentially. They pull him back from the brink of, of death inside the sun. And Superman, grateful, asks these people, what? why did you save me? And they tell him that, remember back when you were Superboy, and you actually breathed fire into this guy and, and saved his life and everything. Well, we're actually like space cousins with those people on this other planet. And we appreciate what you did for our brethren. So, you know, this is us paying you back. And it actually references this story with an editor's note and the one panel recap of Superboy breathing fire into the guy is almost exactly, even though it's a different artist, almost exactly the same as is the the panel in this story that shows superboy do that so it's there's actually a callback to this story which i thought was really cool as a kid i owned a very tattered coverless and i think missing the first page or two copy of this book so a couple of years ago when i went on my crusade to replace all of the old tattered coverless books in my collection and there were a lot of them uh, this was one of the very first ones that I sought out. And I agree with Mr. Hembeck. I love the cover on this book because it, to me, it's, it's almost like new because I, I had never seen it until I actually bought uh, the, the shiny new copy that I have now, or actually shiny old copy, but it's a really good uh, copy of the book. So that's kind of the backstory on this. Anyway, um, I mentioned at the beginning um, that there was no story credit on this, but I strongly suspect because of this callback that the writer's probably the same guy between the two books. So the writer on um, all of that virus X story was Leo Dorfman, who was kind of the Superman guy back during the sixties. And his run on Superboy is kind of spotty, but I think a lot of that is because they just didn't give credits or there wasn't like not really accurate records kept of the credits by DC back then. So he probably did a whole string of stories. It's just, we, we lack that information to fill in those gaps. So I'm going to attribute this story to Leo Dorfman until I know better. Well, on that. But, I don't know if I know better, but I did a quick search on this and I was able to find something on comic vine uh, mm -hmm. and it gives creators for the book. Uh, and I think you have to take it somewhat with a grain of salt, unless you're ready to say that each story, because there's several stories in this book, unless you're ready to say that everyone had the same writer, because uh, it only credits one person for each role in this. Uh, uh -huh. According to Comic Vine, Kurt Swan penciled the co cover, uh, George Klein inked the cover. Uh, what is it? Henry, they, they, they give two anchors, George Papp and Henry Badenoff, Bodenoff? who I'm not familiar with, okay. I guess. Henry, I don't, I don't, I'm not familiar with him. No, no, yeah. wait. Now, Henry Badenoff is the fellow who drew those little, you know, uh, 
half page humor strips in the old super right movie. right right yeah okay so this is this is where this information may be uh well, oh, in, you know, incomplete but they'd list the writer as otto binder okay he wrote another story in the book not this one but he wrote another that's, story in the book well that's and that's why i'm saying you have to take it with a grain of salt because there's multiple stories and i don't know that they're all written by the same person they only credit the one writer though there's a casey the cop strip in the back by henry did okay. he also do Super like Multi Super Turtle and, and some of those other Yeah, ones? Super Turtle and all those things, yeah. yeah. Yeah, I love his stuff. I knew his name sounded familiar. I couldn't place it, but yep. yeah, I love the Super Turtle stuff. I'd love to see that get collected sometime. Yeah, really. Those were fun. fun. This, this particular book has a lot of fun ads in it because it's got oh, yeah. se several ads that are actual strips. There's a, a tricks yeah. ad. Uh, there's also, what was I looking at? Rocky and Bullwinkle. Uh, yeah, Rocky and Bullwinkle, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah for yeah. Cheerios. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, th there's this... no question this this book is is aimed at a younger audience. That's, you know, that's not an issue. Oh, yeah. uh, and, and I think, you know, a lot of times when we look at these books, especially when we're in the Silver Age, uh, I have to try and pull myself back and understand that they were not looking for people who are, you know, approaching senior citizenhood to be reading them and reviewing them. Uh, yeah. You know, they're, they're looking for, you know, eight, nine, 10, 11, 12 year olds to be reading this story. So I, I kind of try to add that to my mental aspect of it when I'm reviewing it. This is not, you know, the current day stuff. Right. And, yeah. and it, yeah, it's it's as dopey as hell, but I think it's kind of fun. I, I got a kick out of a lot of, and some of it was just like, you know, oh, how convenient he found the fire planet, and and the, and the guy just happened to need mouth to mouth resuscitation. I know. One thing I, I definitely feel like uh, bears pointing out in this too is that I did something I don't do very often when when we do these shows is I actually dug out my physical copy. And again, if we're going to put up the uh, the the video on this, here's the line. The, oh, uh, I got nothing. I dug it out for one reason, which is when I was reading the um, the digital copy and got to the end of the story. It doesn't oh, I know what you're going to say. End. And I really thought it might be missing a page. I'm just like, Wait, that's it? So Me I too. Kind of, yeah, you did it too? Yeah. I, 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 I looked and I said, did I, did I rip a page out of here? Which I didn't <laughs> do, but you never know. Yeah. It, it seems like there should be another at least half page to wrap it up because the scientists, they don't seem to. Exactly. This, this whole story about the thing that could, you know, change uh, energy uh, forever is pretty much all about Superboy making sure Lana Lang doesn't know he's Clark Kent. <laughs> right. That's the point of the story. That's you the know, point granted, of all these stories. Granted, well, it's, it's, it went back and forth between Lana Lang trying to prove that Superboy was Clark Kent and Lois Lane trying to prove that Superman was. Oh, I know. Right. You know, I, I, when I, I don't, didn't remember this story because now, like, when I was, like, in 1961... I started reading these Superman family books and they made a big impression on me. This was before the Marvel stuff came along and I was eight years old, but um, three years later, I've gotten kind of hip to their, to the, to the Mort Weisinger stuff. And it kind of got, I kind of got tired. And, and frankly, Superboy was my least favorite of the, all the Superman family books. So I didn't remember this one, but there's a story from uh, 1961 in a Superman comic 
that I just love that's incredibly stupid also, because the whole story, Kurt Swan, beautifully drawn, the whole story is about Superman trying to av avoid a picture of him taken by these UN, and UN representatives for a stamp. Um, he wanted... He didn't like the picture they took, and the whole story is him taking him to the moon, do all kinds of crazy places to get a different photo, but they never like any of the other photos. I think eventually a different photo gets uh, used, and we find out in the last panel is because Clark Kent is, a, is afraid that if the original picture had been used and, and mail from Rangoon had gotten their uh, postal stamp on it, it would go over his eyes and people would know he was Clark Kent. Yeah. Okay. Yes, I thought this sounded food. Yes. <laughs> okay. I, right. I don't have. I, I've, I've never read that one. <laughs> that is the secret of the Superman stamp. Is from a 61, 1962 issue of Superman. I think. It's but at eight years old, it probably I made total see. sense to you. It, oh yeah, it, it did. I mean, but by the time this came around, I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Give me my Fantastic Four. You know, that's why the Fantastic Four was such a, you know. Uh, made such an impression on me because you read because for two years or yeah about two years i'm reading comics that have nothing to do the superman and even batman they were all concerned about their secret identities more than anything i mean in this story the other thing by the way that scott that you missed in this story that made me laugh was the fact that uh, after he melts the uh the icebergs the ice caps it turns out he's going to be flooding a nearby uh Right by town, so he he you know builds a seawall and everyone's yay great thank you yeah he just it's because of him people that's why he's buying the building the seawall right right he he conveniently just, does not mention that to those people so they think he's a hero and and don't yeah. realize the menace that he really is he just fixing something he screwed up in the first place he wasn't thinking and how about all this a nice seawall though I mean you, you, you turn to page two. You turn to page two, and the first panel, he's sitting there with Lois. I'm not Lois, Lana. The second panel, he's talking to the, uh, the scientists. And the third panel, he's on the moon. I mean, these stories, like, zip through. Nowadays, yes. it's yeah, like yeah. five issues or something to do, right? Yeah. It's like three panels. Yeah, we've, we've, had, uh, we've had a lot of talk uh, over the years on the show about uh, compressed storytelling versus decompressed. Yeah. Yeah. And ultimately, I do prefer compressed to an extent. Yeah. But when they're trying to squeeze a whole story into 10 pages, it's, it's you know, virtually yeah, are, impossible to get These are details. super compressed, yeah. I mean, I read, I, then I made a point of reading that Fantastic Four story, and that it doesn't go as, as slow as the stories do. And, well, I haven't read too many lately, but I, what I've seen. Uh, but it, it certainly has more breathing room than, you know, three panels in and we're, we're on the moon. Yeah, well, you know, the, the, the example I have in my mind all the time is I think about Amazing Fantasy 15. I think the Spider-Man origin story is about 12 to 15 pages. Right. And then compare that to what uh, Bendis did uh, in uh, Ultimate Spider-Man, where it took uh, probably 10 issues before he was actually uh, superpowered. Wow. You know, I've never read an Ultimate comic. Hmm. They they are enjoyable. I'm, I'm not, I'm not, I don't mean I don't mean to put them down. Yeah. I, I I actually enjoyed that run for a while, but it did eventually run out of steam. Yeah, no, I'm not. I'm not. I just kind of drifted away from reading new comics. 
Um, well, that's that's our uh, <laughs> that's our mantra on this show. The whole point is we do old comics because <laughs> we really don't care so much for the new ones. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when the Ultimate books came around, I'm going, why did they need Ultimate books? I, I was still kind of reading comics at that point, but I I just said, well, I'm not. It, this a, that's supposed to be a whole different line for people who aren't familiar with the characters they're telling me. And I know the characters, so I'm not going to read these books. I hear there were some of them are good, like you said, but you know. Yeah, you know, it's it, it's this points where it got a little over the top and a little too, you know, hey, let's let's show how adult we are by by having things happen that you know you would never see in comics in the past. And sometimes it was intelligently done, and sometimes it seemed like it was done for shock value. Uh, and and I certainly didn't care for the latter. Well, let me if you say he didn't become Spider-Man for the first ten issues, what was he doing? Oh, they had the whole, you know, they had to build up the whole story with him being bullied in school and his relationship with Uncle Ben. And some of it was very interesting to read, to be oh, totally sure. honest with you. Uh, and, and with the compressed storytelling, they usually take you, you know, 10 minutes an issue to read them. So yeah. if you picked it up month on a monthly basis, I think you'd get bored pretty quickly. Uh, but if you pick it up in the trade and you're reading, you know, the whole story arc in, in one sitting, it's really not so bad. I, I I believe you there. Yes, because uh, I uh, well, occasionally I get the uh, the blank cover comics, you know, just drawing on them and stuff, sell them. Mm-hmm. And I bought a, a Wolverine number one several years ago, and Alan Davis did the drawing, and I, I liked his artwork. So I thought, well, I'm going to read this and see what this is like. And it wasn't. It was the text was very light, and. I probably read it in five minutes, and it struck me as like, if, if if that was a TV show, if that Wolverine story was a TV show, this was the first two minutes before the credits came on to te- you know to get you to watch the show. <laughs> and that's all I I'm can, getting out of the story is like the, the many, three minutes. We know of, exactly uh, what you're talking. Yeah, we. How many how many books have we described? It was yeah. the first issue in the series, and we said it's like the the pre title you know pre credit yep. sequence. Yep. It's you. you you know, I, I think it has something to do with what you grow up reading. And, you know, you yeah. grew up reading similar things to us, even though it was a few years apart. Uh, but, you know, I mean, I was, I started really intensely reading comics around 71. Yeah. Uh, and, and at that point, I was insatiable. I wanted to get everything I could. So I was reading the Silver Age stuff that you had already read. Yep. Yeah, well, no, I read pretty well kept up until the ni- about 1990. Then on and off through the 90s to 2000, and then since then, not so much. But on the flip side, one of the things we, you know, Paul and I and, and our other co-host, Bill, who unfortunately couldn't make it tonight, um, we've talked a lot about is kind of the reverse of that, that there's a lot of comics, especially like from this era. And I, and I think in some ways, as dopey as this Superboy story is, I think this is, uh, could be included in this, is that I always marvel now, looking back at a lot of these older stories, at all of the incredible just throwaway ideas that some of these stories had that you could glom onto and you could make a whole nother thing out of just some of the the really far out concepts and and everything and some of these old stories move so fast that they don't really stop to breathe sometimes if you know what i mean to where you know they're just they're just throwing out all kinds of crazy stuff that if you took a second to go wait a minute let me let me let me grab a hold of that and, and really explore that. And that's kind of the, the magic of the older books too, I think. Yeah. No, it's, 
I used to enjoy three those three, three stories in one issue. I especially like the ones with Jimmy Olsen and Lana, uh, Lois Lane because they weren't superpowered. They had to do something, but they also had to work Superman into the story somehow too. Right. Plus, I use, I like the artwork better. But uh, although George Papp is not a bad artist, but his stuff is kind of bland. You know? Yes. <laughs> but, but it's actually pretty well done. I realize. You know, as far as telling the story and stuff, and if you look at some of the stuff he did in the fifties, which is more detailed, but I guess at that point the whole deal was to try to make it as simple as possible. Now, the stuff you're saying you preferred with with Jimmy Olsen and Lana Lang would that be the Kurt Schaffenberger stuff? Uh, Kurt Schaffenberger, Kurt Swan, yeah, they, they did most of them. Of course, John Forte did a bunch of uh, right. Jimmy Olsen as well. He had a very strange style, which, well, I didn't actually. I couldn't say I actually liked his artwork. I, it's, it's something about it that I like, even though, it, does that make any sense? Uh, absolutely, yeah. Absolutely. He did the Bizarro and he did the uh, Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, he probably wasn't the best guy to do the Legion of Superheroes, but he's the one who stuck in my head for it. He was the perfect uh, guy with, to with Bizarro. With Legion of Superheroes, I always eventually work my way over to Mike Grell as being kind of the guy for me. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, he's no, coming I, to MegaCon this year, and I really hope to get to go because that he's been on my list for a long time of one of those guys that you know I'd, I'd really just like to, you know, just like to shake his hand and go, "Hey, thanks for being such a big part of my childhood." You know? Yeah, yeah, I met him once. He's a very nice guy. Our, our friends uh, Ruth and Darren Sutherland are friend. They they know him fairly well, and oh, wow. uh, they promised me at some point they're going to introduce me to him. So that'll be nice. <laughs> there you go. That'll be great. I just found so, out today that apparently uh, Tom DeFalco is coming to Fort Lauderdale, which for me is probably about three, three and a half hours. But if I can make it, I'm going to go because that's a guy I'd really like to meet. Oh, okay. That'd be great. Yeah. So just, just you know, to, to bring us back to this story a little bit is, you know, the story is ultra silly and I'm not going to try and defend it from that point of view. And, and like I said, I think I try to take it from the perspective of, you know, who is it aimed at at that time? And if, if I was eight years old, when this came out, I think I would have been eating this up and loving it. And I probably would have read it multiple times, to be honest with you, because all, all the, the silliness of it would be, it wouldn't, it's not that it would be lost on me, but it would not bother me in the slightest quite frankly right. i wouldn't be looking for any sort of scientific basis to to give any credit to this stuff oh, yeah. um, my experience with this stuff at this point in my life is i can really appreciate silver age dc and and you know silver age marvel isn't quite as silly but some of that is silly also you know yeah. stan with his magnets and all of that uh but you know, a lot of times when it, when they get to this level of silliness, I feel like I have to kind of limit my ingestion a little bit. I can oh, read a story and then I have to read something a little bit more grounded and then I can go back to another one of these. Yeah, I, I know what you mean. I, I find, you know, even though the Weisinger, this, he, he had like, a, his Superman family was almost like a little version of the Marvel Universe. Oh, he had, yeah. yeah, I mean, he, he had all these different things which made a lot of them were silly, but a lot of them were pretty interesting that they were able to revamp in years later. So the ideas were there. So I enjoyed his books probably more than, I mean, I've tried reading some of the old Justice League and Flash, but I, I get a more of a kick out of these goofy Superman stories from that era <laughs> than I do the Julie Schwartz ones that everybody loved. And certainly I always find the 
other stuff like the Jack Schiff Batman and those stuff really boring at this point. Uh, <laughs> but uh, Superman, Jim Nelson, those things are just a kick, you know? I would just out of curiosity, you know, we're talking a slightly later era, but uh, how did you uh, receive the uh, Brave and the Bold and the new Teen Titans, or the original Teen Titans, not the new Teen Titans? Uh, you know, that stuff really got kind of silly at times, but I'm curious as to how you took in those. But at the time, I yeah, at the time I read every DC comic except um, for some reason I would never read Space Ranger. I never bought Space Ranger, you know, in uh, Tales of Unexpected, but I read them all on and off of the war books. But I, I read them, and yeah, you're right about the Teen Titans. They got really goofy after a while, but the artwork was really nice, and you know, those characters were friends with people in the Justice League, so I had to read the book. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the, the, those stories always strike me as as amusing, and those in particular. But then you can go to a lot of stuff, even you know some of Stan writing dialogue for, you know, teenagers and stuff like that. You know, where you have people who are bordering on middle age writing what a fifteen year old would say. Uh, uh, now, you know, trying to write stuff myself, I know <laughs> what you mean. It's like what in Sam Hill? Who's Sam Hill, by the way? Uh, be, uh, yeah, exactly. To, but yeah, I always, of, I always. My personal favorite is, uh, you know, people who would come over and call people boy chick. It's like, you know, there's something that, you know, generally if you're under 60, you're not using that word. Yeah. But yeah. but they have 14-year-olds saying it. <laughs> or how about when they call people leader man? Okay, leader man. <laughs> I, I remember, you know, they did that that history, uh, that, uh, Marvel premiere magazine of, of the Beatles, you know? Mm -hmm. I, yeah. I think it was Dave Kraft who wrote it. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah. He wrote it in Marvelese, and I remember. I think it was Paul McCartney turning to John Lennon, going, "Okay, leader man." And I'm thinking, myself, <laughs> "Really? You talk like you talk like Stanley <laughs> Paul? I did not know that." <laughs> yeah, it's, I think there's old fallback things that they had in their writing, you know, standard things that they went through. And I guess, Probably you know, maybe too. if you had an editor who would try and be a little bit more diligent on, you know, hey, let's kind of, <laughs> let's kind of clean up this language, make it a little bit more realistic. But yeah, everybody was comfortable with it. And it certainly didn't bother me when I was a young kid at all. No, no, but that one, that one always stuck out in my head because I was just, these guys are not, this is the Fab Four, not the Fantastic Four. But okay. Speaking of and the bringing, Fantastic Four. Speaking, well, you know what? Let's give this one a quick grade before we move oh, on. Oh, right. To the we have to do the grade. Four. I forgot the grading. You guys so, do it first. Yeah, usually we go with the person who presents the book goes first. So, Scott, yep. it's your book. You go. Okay. Well, you have to understand that, uh, you know, I, I don't remember what age I was when I read this, but I, I was a kid when I read this. So, it's hard for me to look at this objectively because I look at this with just tons of nostalgia. Um, the, the, strangely though the cover is what we always grade first the cover um i i don't have the warm fuzzy nostalgia over it just because to me it's still kind of a new cover because my cover my copy didn't have one um but that said i think it's a fantastic cover i really do um you know we often talk about is it iconic or you know would it get you to pick it up off the stands i think it's semi-iconic i don't know that i've ever seen it homaged anywhere or anything like that specifically but I do consider it kind of uh, uh, an iconic image still just because of, you know, how dynamic Superboy looks and what's happening and everything. 
if I saw this on the stands, I'd be like, Ooh, that looks cool. I got to check that out, which, you know, that's the whole idea with this. So I, I think it's a really, uh, uh, a really good cover. So I'm going to give this one an A for the cover. I really like this a lot. And, uh, you know, this is, this is still, uh, you know, Kurt right at the top of his game, I think. So, uh, yeah, I, I just think it's a really fantastic cover interior art. It, it's a really tough one because, um, yeah, George Papp's not one of my favorites. I like his stuff. Um, you know, as Mr. Hembeck said, I, I you know, it's, it's just, it's kind of dull. I mean, Superboy is doing so many incredible things in this story from melting icebergs to flying to the moon and a nuclear explosion in his gut and all this cool stuff. And it's all just kind of presented very workmanlike. It's not bad. It's just kind of there. It's I mean, it could also, it, you know, this could be an Archie, you know, it, it's just there's not anything terribly dynamic about it. And when I see Superman or Superboy in action, I expect dynamism and for it to look cool but you know that said it, it does what it needs to do it tells the story it's it's you know it's easy to follow and it's easily digestible so i mean it, it's good stuff but for me you know i i am a huge superboy fan but for me superboy really kind of starts with like bob brown era and goes forward those are my guys bob brown mike grell joe staten um and some of the later ones um so this is you know it's a fun relic from my childhood, but you know, I'm not terribly um, nostalgic as far as the artwork goes. So art wise, I think I'm just going to go kind of a, I was going to say a middle of the road C I'll be generous and say a middle of the road C plus. Cause you know, it's, it, it's good stuff. It's just, you know, I would like something a little more jazzy than this. And then stories really hard for me to grade because I, I you know, I am very nostalgic about this story. Um, it's, it's hard for me to see it in other, any other way, but from kids, I saw all, all graded as a kid, you know, to me, this was thrilling. I, I loved it. I thought, Oh, this is really cool. You know, I didn't stop to think that, wait a minute, how dangerous is this? Even for Superboy, he's still a biological entity. How did they know this won't kill him? You know, <laughs> ingesting this, this, you know, nuclear bomb essentially. So you know, those sorts of things. But I didn't stop to think about that stuff. I just thought it was really cool. And I, and I like how it ends on a, on a heroic beat. He uses his new power to save lives, which is, you know, that's what Superboy does. So, um, you know, so story-wise, you know, from, from kids' eyes, this this is a solid A story, I think, because it, it's it's thrilling, it's fun, it's it's goofy in that fun, wacky way that comics were back then. Um, with a more you know modern sensibility yeah this is more closer to like you know the the c minus d plus range honestly so you know take that for whoever it is but you know for for me for pure nostalgia's sake um you know as an overall grade for for this story um yeah it's right up there it's it's like a it's like an a minus i i really dig it so but you know, of course, your, your mileage can vary if you have no sentimental attachment to it whatsoever. Uh -huh. Well, I, I first read this. I first read this story today. Uh, it's the first time I've ever seen it. Uh, so I don't have any nostalgic uh, connection to it. And when I first looked at the cover, quite frankly, I thought that's eh, you know it's fairly workmanlike, but nothing you know too special. But you, the two of you talking about it have actually given me a greater appreciation. Uh, for it. I think my biggest complaint about the cover is it could use just a little something in the background instead of a pale gray 
you know, with nothing at all. But beyond that, right. I think, you know, Superboy is drawn very well. Uh, at a glance, I probably would have thought that was Lex Luthor with glasses uh, on the oh, yeah. on the side uh, and maybe Perry right. White next to him. Uh, but, you know, every, everybody looks really clean and, and well drawn. Uh, and I think, you know, the, the actual layout of the cover, you know, as Fred said, it's kind of simple, but it, it, it's, yes, I say. Uh, but, it, you know, it, it really does convey exactly what you want out of this story. So I'm going I'm to a solid B on it. I, I came up from a B minus to a B based upon uh, this discussion. Um, the interior art, you know, they really weren't doing it back then, but I think it really would have benefited from breaking away from the standard grids on these pages. If they had done something a little, yeah. just a little bit to make it a little bit more dynamic, I think it would really stand out as being a lot better than it is. Uh, so, but overall, I, I think it tells the story fairly well. It moves you along. The story moves at a breakneck pace, as Fred described. So, uh, you know, there's only so much storytelling you could actually do from panel to panel because you're going to just jump from scene to scene to scene. Uh, but, you know, the images are all pretty clean. It's, it's not that hard to follow what's going on. So I, I'm going to say I'm going to say a B minus on the interior art. Uh, the story grading it from the perspective of if I were a preteen, uh, I would have I would have loved this. I would have read this over and over again. I guarantee you if I was eight, nine, 10, 11 years old and I picked up this story. So I'm going to give it an A minus on the story and I'm going to give it a, just a solid B overall. Oh, there you go. Well, I guess I'm supposed to say something now, right? Am I ready? Am That's I, it. It's me. Unless you refuse. No, no, I, I, I'm willing. I'm willing. Uh, cover, yes. Best thing about the uh, situation, uh, not iconic, um, but I'll give it a B. I'll give it a B for the cover. Now, I did read this when I was a kid, but the thing was, it was already I was already um, three and a half years into my Mort Weisinger reading, and by this point, uh, and and Superboy was my least favorite one, so I, I have no real, I have no memory of reading this. Now, I mentioned that story earlier about the uh, poster stamp with Rangoon, which is this is goofy. That story, I just like uh, Scott, I'd be giving that one an A, going, "This is a great story, even <laughs> incredibly stupid." But since I don't have those feelings for this one. Uh, not going to go quite that high. The artwork, like I said, I've seen better. He's a, he's a good artist, but, you know, like you said, Scott, like when he's blowing up the mountain and all the rocks are flying out, it looks like styrofoam. You know, it's, <laughs> it, uh, not, and he's flying through space, which is, a, 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 a lilac purple with a few um, round planets in it, and people think it's a comet. That's, that's crazy. And so the artwork, <laughs> I'll give that a C because I've seen better. But it's you know he's he's good artist, but I've seen better. Um, you know what I don't like about this story, and I didn't realize it until I read it was the lettering. I, I'm not sure who does this lettering, but I think sometimes I'm not crazy about the lettering. It kind of throws me off. I love the letter right. on the cover, but uh, there's certain I don't know who the who the letterer is for this, but he did most of the Superboys, and that kind of hurt him. And story wise, like I said, if I was nostalgic, I'd love it. If I'm not nostalgic about it, so I kind of think it's dopey, 
and I don't like the way it ends. It looks like there's another half page to go at least. It's, it just ends on page seven, and it's like, what? So I'm going to give this one a – I'm going to give it a D story-wise. I'm sorry. It's crazy. <laughs> no, it's okay. <laughs> maybe we should have maybe we should have read The Phantom Zone Fugitive. Ooh, how could that yes. happen? <laughs> I'm just looking, you know, with your comment on the lettering, I just started flipping through it a little bit. And and if you look at the uh bottom left panel on the page when he goes under the water, uh it actually looks like he ran out of space and had to squeeze the last two lines in. Yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Look at that. Yeah. yeah. Sure. It's not like he didn't have room. I mean, he could have moved it up a little bit because it was yeah. nothing really, you know, that. Yeah. Yeah. I'm not. I wonder who that letter is. I just don't care for it. DC uh, had a lot of good letterers, but I'm not crazy about this particular character. I love I how every one of Superboy's, because he can't speak. So he writes notes to the scientists. Every one of the notes he writes to them is signed Superboy, even though he's standing right there. So it's obvious he wrote it. <laughs> yes, I, that's hilarious. I did not catch that. Yeah. And I love the janitor. He's like, oh, look what I found. People, will, what, will, what a sensation this will make when I tell people. Because, of course, we got to, you know, rat on Superboy. <laughs> now i'm curious do you remember the the other story that that i mentioned that references this the the leper from krypton virus x story do you remember that one uh yes and no and i say yes and no because um like i said i started reading the superman comics first but they were also the first comics i stopped reading uh around 1957 <laughs> or so because I just got fed up with uh, the goofy stories. And that's when they started bringing in new artists and making things look different. Right. And, and I actually bought some of those years later, like for 25 cents or comic conventions. And I think I did read that, that story you're talking about. Was that Ross Andrew who drew those? It was. Yes, it was. Okay. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. I remember the, the covers. So yeah, those stories were more interesting. I did. I didn't hang on at the time. And I waited until Mark Weisinger retired, and then I started buying the book. In fact, the first the first uh, Superman title he gave up was Superboy. He turned that over to Murray Boltonoff, and um, you got your Bob Brown and 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 Wally Wood in a number of issues. So, and those right, are right. feature length stories, so it has some room to move. Um, so, yeah, that uh, that was when I started picking up Superboy again, and then once. Mort took the left the building entirely. Um, what I did was uh, I started, you know, Julie Schwartz took over. I started reading them again. Yeah, I started a a Superboy read through not long ago, and I actually started the read through with the first Bob Brown issue, just because those are probably the ones I, I have the biggest sentimental warm fuzzies for is that Bob Brown stuff. There's, there's something about his Superboy I just really loved. Um, I've seen his work on other titles like Batman and it doesn't really do it for me. Um, and I know we've, uh, Paul and I have discussed his work. Uh, he did a brief run on the Avengers, which is kind of, eh, it, oh, yeah. it's okay, but there's something about his Superboy that it just, it, it just hits that spot for me. I love that stuff. 
Did you ever see his Challengers of the Unknown, which predate, predates Superboy? No. No I, no, I don't think I have seen that. Oh, yeah, he did. That, that's know. one of those titles I need to check out one of these days because I've read precious few challengers. I, I think the only, like, uh, sustained num- you know, run of issues I ever read was when, uh, right towards the end, when uh, I think it was um, Keith Giffen, I want to say, was the artist, and Swamp Thing joined the team for, for a well, brief that, time. That was a revival of uh, Right, Challenge. right. yeah. No, the original challengers after Kirby did the first, I don't know, half dozen issues or so, it was all Bob Brown for like four or five years. Oh, I didn't know issue. that. Oh, yeah. yeah, I never until, really. Until until around 1967 when they started, all different artists started working at different, uh, you know, because in the early 60s, if, if, if somebody drew this, drew a certain DC comic, they drew it all the time. Right. No shuffling around. So it was Bob Brown. I never really read Challengers, but I've always heard that, that that they were a precursor to the Fantastic Four. I'm not recommending uh, it. I'm just saying it's out there. <laughs> you know. Yeah, the original ones, the Kirby ones, sure. Yeah, those are worth taking a look at. I guess but speaking they, of the Fantastic Four. Speak, yes, exactly. <laughs> speaking of the Fantastic Four. Uh, so, you know, as, as we mentioned earlier, we uh, I, I picked Fantastic Four number five, which is the introduction of Dr. Doom as an issue to do today. <clears throat> it has a cover date of July 1962, and it was released on April 10th, 1962. Did you have something you were looking to say, Fred? I'm sorry. Did I? Oh, no, I, I, I pushed the button and my screen went away for a second. I didn't mean to start. Oh, okay. So the, the story is written by Stan Lee, penciled by Jack Kirby, inked by Joe Sinnott. I mean, how could you go wrong with that team? Colored by Stan Goldberg and lettered by Artie Simic. And in, in old-timey fashion, it's broken up, broken up into five parts. Yep. Uh, so p- part one is The Prisoners of Dr. Doom. And our story opens up with Dr. Doom playing with his Fantastic Four action figures while being overseen by a pet vulture. He departs Castle Doom in a helicopter and heads to the Big Apple. In the Baxter building, Johnny is reading an issue of The Incredible Hulk and compares Ben to the Hulk. Ben grabs the comic, but Johnny sets it on fire, probably knowing that it'll be canceled soon, and with no regard for its eventual value. Reed and Sue separate them, and suddenly the lights go out, despite their emergency generator. Dr. Doom's helicopter drops a net over the building. When Doom calls out to them, Reed recognizes the voice, Victor Von Doom, an old college classmate. After an experiment at university, during which Doom tried to communicate with the dead, but instead caused an explosion, he was expelled. Doom demands Sue as a hostage, and bafflingly, she agrees and goes up to the roof. Part two, back to the past. Doom takes the invisible girl aboard his ship, binding and gagging her. He then demands the rest of the FF must enter his ship and pledge not to attack him. The thing agrees to this by setting off a flare. Doom lowers a cage over Reed, Ben, and Johnny and takes them to his castle. Once there, he tells them that he has invented a time machine, and that they must retrieve Blackbeard's treasure chest from the past. With Sue as hostage, they agree. Doom presses a button, activating the time platform that they were unwittingly standing on. They appear in a port where they come across two pirates arguing over a stolen bundle of clothes, conveniently. Ben scares them off, and they disguise themselves, including a heavy black beard for Ben. Looking for someone in Blackbeard's crew, they go to a tavern, and two pirates tell a barmaid to serve the stranger's drugged grog, which causes them to fall asleep. Part three, on the trail of Blackbeard. Reed, Ben, and Johnny wake up in the hold of a pirate ship. 
Ben bursts through the deck and subdues the entire crew with the help of Johnny and Reed. When another ship appears, Ben takes and orders the crew to attack. Part four, battle. Johnny flames on and starts the attack on the other ship and raises a cloud of steam. Reed stretches to the other ship like a gangplank over which the crew passes and a quick fight ensues. While, Johnny and, while Reed and Johnny haul a treasure chest out of the hold, the crew hails Ben as Blackbeard. Reed empties the chest, reminding Johnny that they only promised to bring back Blackbeard's chest, not his treasure, and he replaces the treasure with chains. On the deck, they realize that Ben is the Blackbeard of legend. He refuses to return with them, ordering the crew to douse Johnny, wrap Reed in a sail, and set them adrift in a lifeboat. But before they can launch the boat through excuse me, before they can launch the boat, a huge water spout strikes the ship and destroys it. Reed and Johnny make it to shore where they find Ben in the chest. Part five, the vengeance of Dr. Doom. The time platform appears above them and returns them to the present. Doom says that the treasure includes gems enchanted by Merlin and they will make him invincible. He opens the chest and discovers that he's been cheated, which gives Ben the opportunity to attack. A single punch shatters the armor and the machinery inside, revealing that it's the first ever Doombot. The real Dr. Doom in another part of the castle activates a screen and tells them that he will drain the air from their chamber, which causes the three of them to collapse. Sue, still his hostage, sees her chance, turns invisible, and short circuits the control panel, which explodes. Doom is caught at the blast. She runs to the chamber and opens the door. Rather than confront Doom, who Reed assumes has traps everywhere, they decide to escape. Reed stretches through a window across the moat, and Ben pushes that section of the wall open while Reed pulls, and Johnny uses atomic heat to make a path across the crocodile-infested moat. Johnny then sets fire to the castle, but Doom escapes with his rocket-powered flying harness. Johnny tries to give chase, but his flames run out. The story ends with Reed vowing to devote their lives to tracking down Doom and the Submariner who appeared in the previous issue. Uh, the three things that jumped out at me before we get into a discussion is, one, there's uh, a letter from Roy Thomas in, on the letters page in this issue, which I just found fascinating. Uh, there's also an ad for that same issue of Hulk number one, which Johnny burned in this issue, and I felt the need to look it up. Uh, Hulk number one was released on March 1st of 1962, so it had been out about a month and a half before this one came out. Mm. And then the uh, the last thing that just jumped out at me was the ad for uh, at the at the back page of the book, the ad for uh, the uh, drawing school, famous artist schools. That picture, just every time I see it, I always think that's Abe Vigoda in the picture, and I just feel yes. the need to say that. Yes, that's that's, that's <laughs> very true. Good call on that one. I, I so. just, I, I have to burst in here to say that I, I was kind of shocked that one of the things, the three things that you didn't mention is the thing that, to me, is the elephant in the room in this story. It's the thing that that kind of ruins the story and pulls me right out of it is the whole blackbird and blackbeard thing um, oh it's absolutely totally yeah. silly it's, it's it black, belongs in that that superboy book <laughs> blackbeard yeah. blackbeard isn't a legend blackbeard isn't like if this was i'm going to send you back in time to get bigfoot's treasure and ben 
becomes the legend of Bigfoot. Okay, that makes sense because that's just a, a mythical legendary thing that we're not really sure, you know, does it exist? Did it ever exist? Blackbeard was an actual person. He was a real person. He wasn't just a myth or a legend. He was an actual person. So now Ben has somehow like displaced well, this person let's let's play devil's advocate with that and and just for the, you know for, we could assume for uh purposes of this discussion you know history has a way of being written in the way that people choose to write it so yeah you know we know blackbeard is a real person but ben was a real person and you know maybe following his uh very brief exploit. So, you know, he, it was written and maybe it's like the, the, what is it? The dread pirate Roberts in uh, princess bride where somebody else took over the role of being Blackbeard after he left. Who knows? History is just, you know, especially from, I think way back then, it's too difficult to know what reality is and what's been reported as, you know, as reality. Right. But the, but the guy who, who actually historically really was Blackbeard, we know an, enough about his life, especially his demise, that that's that's on the historical record. It's it's not like he his identity wasn't known or like his like he just sailed off one day and we never knew what happened to him. Like we know exactly what happened to this guy historically. So it's not even like Ben, you know, like like the historians are wrong and ben actually was this guy and and did all because he doesn't do the same thing if you see what i'm saying he he didn't oh yeah like i totally get what you're saying and yeah, and i'm so head canoning it saying that after he left some <laughs> other dude on the ship came forward and he had a black beard and he says you know what now i'm black beard and, yeah. then, and he lived okay, that life that right. went down in history I'll, I'll take that no prize i guess it's no, no dumber than the rest of the story. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's I do have a no prize somewhere around here. I don't even know where I've put it. Somebody <laughs> somebody gave me one at one point. It's nowhere now. Yeah, exactly. Uh you know, it it's it's hard to believe that from such humble beginnings, Doctor Doom became such a pivotal character in the Marvel universe. Oh, uh yeah. you know, he, he I mean he's he's kind of nothing special as presented here the only thing about his story that makes him stand out in my mind is the little bit of history on you know two-thirds of a page where right. they show that he was a college roommate of reed and that he was right. trying to speak to the undead and all of that but otherwise he's he's your prototypical silver age even golden age villain with no yeah. real basis right like the time iron man fought dr strange only it wasn't our Doctor Strange. It was some other guy with, you know, just a mad scientist who's called Doctor Strange. Do you remember that one? Do you guys know what I'm talking about? Yeah, I do. I yeah. do. There was a point where I did a, doc, a Doctor Strange read through and I was, uh, you know, started from his introduction in Strange Tales and worked my way. I worked my way up to Marvel premiere and then I kind of got lost into something else at that point. Yeah. But I did. <laughs> or actually, and, and I'm totally off the subject because you're talking about Iron Man, which I also did a read through of all the tales to... Uh, Tells the suspense issues and into his own series. You know, this is this is what we do. <laughs> yeah, well, that's cool. That's cool. It's good to do. I've done them. Done in the past. You know, I would always read my Marvel ones. Spider-Man is fantastic for. See, with me, the first Marvel comic I ever got was number four. And the second Marvel comic I ever got was number six. I did not get number four. 
I missed it. I missed it. The first time I saw but, Dr. Doom. Did you, though? He was, he was uh, <laughs> you know, in, in issue number six, uh, cozying up with the Submariner, trying to cause problems. So uh, I, I did not read this uh, story until um, it was reprinted in the second annual, which was... Uh, was it, uh, That's when they had the origin. Pardon me? That's the issue that had Doom's origin. Exactly. And that was around issue number 28 of the Fantastic Four. So I had read about, you know, over 20 issues. So this reading this, it was quaint because it wasn't like the real Fantastic Four when I read it the first time because I had been going along and seeing how they developed because you're right, they, they wouldn't have gone back in time and done this kind of nonsense uh, at, the, at that point in time. But that said, I, I really... Uh, you know, it's it's a good goofy Stan Lee type story from and Kirby story from that era. The couple of things that I thought were there's that panel on page fifteen where Reed is uh, letting the entire uh, group of uh, pirates run across his back to get onto the next next boat, <laughs> which struck me as a little bit uh, hard to believe. And I thought a little off uh, off personality was on, uh, when uh, the thing on page 10 is sitting down to drink, said, Ahoy, matey, let's see if we can date one of these pretty barmaids. <laughs> I mean, he was always like, I'm, I'm so ugly, no one likes me, you know, that kind of thing, even, even early on. So why is he trying to hit on barmaids just because he's wearing a beard now? That struck me as odd. And then you got on the last page, oh, my God, Johnny's going to fall down. He's running out of flame. And you think, oh, Reed's going to stretch out and grab him. But no, he grabs onto some tree branches and saves himself. That's convenient, too. Yeah, but uh, the artwork is really good. And I especially like the way the torch is drawn in the splash panel on part four of the battle. I mean, that might have been the way they would have went if Joe Sinnott had stuck around and but instead he decided to go off and work on those uh treasure chest comics you know the that's why he uh he did not continue on if if you look if the first two pages of the sixth issue are by Joe Sinnott and then we go or maybe even the third I think just the first two I'm by the way I'm looking I don't own that copy so I'm looking at it in my Fantastic Four Omnibus. Oh, nice. I love the Omnibuses. I love, and you know what I love even more? I don't know if you guys have those books, those books that are about this, this large. This, there's like four of them. Uh, they, they, they're about, I don't know, three feet the by. The Treasuries? Is that what you're no, the really the big hardcovers that came out a few years ago. There's one that has oh, all the no, Spider-Man stories. There's one that has all the Steranko shield stories. And there's one Aren't that those has, are not uh, omnibuses or they're not Art, they're, artist, artist oh, no. edition. Is that what they are? No, what? Just talk amongst yourselves. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, I'm trying to I do I do I know what he's talking about, and I can't even think of what the, the name for that particular type artist, of book is called. The artist edition? No, it's not, it's not the artist is? the artist because the artist edition Can you see me now? Oh that's that's a beautiful book. Have you, are you familiar with this size? Oh, no, wow. I'm, I'm not oh, at I, all. That stupid. looks great, though. Yeah, this is all the Steranko, uh Shield, and this one is all the Ditko. 
um, wow. page. And then there's one that's uh, a selection of Kirby FF. There's one that's a selection of Ditko Spider-Man. And there's one that's a, a Galactus one that has um, Kirby, uh, John Buscema, and uh, John Burns stories. Oh, wow. Yeah. I got to put this down. I'm, I'm trying to <laughs> three months and I almost had a hernia. Yeah, they, those are great. I love looking at those things. It's like unbelievable. I love these these omnibuses too. These, but these giants. Oh my god! Well, it's you know the older I get and the more I need these glasses, the I more I, pres- I, I enjoy a, I a big size. That's part of it too. Then, Digests don't do it anymore. Yeah, no. But that's that's why I've, I've grown to love the Treasury editions more and more. And uh, yeah. I love when I I read a comic on my iPad because I can just you know use my fingers to spread out the picture and yeah, you know true. i could put a whole panel on one page yep yep so that 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 definitely helps and, and you know what when when you i believe when you appreciate the artwork in a book or when you're trying to look more closely at the artwork it really helps to be able to do that when when we're covering a book for the show and and i can actually take a panel that i think looks nice and expand it so that the one panel is you know eight and a half by 11 or so uh you know, sometimes you see things that make you appreciate it more, and sometimes you th- see things that make you appreciate it just a touch less. You know, you see some shortcuts yeah. that they made because they knew it was going to be shrunk down, and then right. sometimes you see a, a level of detail that you're, like, amazed that they did. Yep, so yep, that's very true. There's something to be gained by that. I, I really like the artwork in this book, and, you know, I, I particularly like – the the way that at least in this era that he drew the the thing with kind of that dinosaur hide instead of you know individual yeah. rocks me too and and he was still and, kind of a crank too yeah, yeah. i i mean the, you know the first uh comic i number four the first panel in that story he's like bah for all i can i care he can stay hidden talking about the, the torch who just uh quit the previous issue. I'm like, what the hell is this about? I've never seen a comic like this before. So I kind of, you know, they kind of softened him up a few once Alicia come along, came along, but uh, I actually did like the uh, mean, mean thing. It was, it was. Yeah. It's both, you know, both in the appearance and in the, uh, yep. the personality. And, yeah. and, you know, yeah. I, I kind of like it as the thing has got the heart of gold under the very gruff exterior which right. they've tried to do, but sometimes they go a little too far with the heart of gold. You know, they they, they should make him. I I, I kind of like him wanting to not be nice and kind of like he can't help it. You know, that, that more right. of, a, of that kind of element. Right. Uh, yeah, I mean, you could see he didn't really have a grasp yet on where he was going to go with Doctor Doom and his character model. First of all, on on the uh, opening splash, it appears to me that he does not have any gauntlets on that those are actually his hands uh right so oh yeah yeah look at that okay and and you know the way the mask is drawn it's it's not you know i mean most things aren't what they're going to eventually develop into but i but i see it you know a big difference in the way that he's presented uh and i i think it's it's he he's almost like the man in the iron mask like the movie here yep and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I always wonder with the Marvel method, how things developed and like the whole idea of going back for Blackbeard's treasure, you know, historically accurate or, or not, uh, you know, was that something that Stan came up with and told Jack to draw or is that something Jack came up with and Stan had to dialogue it? 
Uh, I'm, I'm really not so sure. I think at this era, they probably were discussing it together and sharing ideas. Yeah, that, that would be what I would think as well. But yeah. I don't, I, I, I'm surprised in, in the trunk of clothing that they stole, you know, they actually found a long wig for Reed to wear uh, and didn't just put a hat <laughs> on him. Uh, the picture of them all when they're, when they're uh, or the panel where they're all unconscious and then the whole page, because then there's three panels with the thing slowly waking up. Uh, oh, yeah. I think that's, that's beautiful artwork. I really, really like that page a lot. I, I agree with you there. How about on the next uh, page though, when uh, Reed is shooting up to punch the guy in the, in the face and you see his uh, fantastic four pants. Right. <laughs> but you know what that page i think might be even an example of what i was talking about you take that page on an ipad and you stretch it out and considering the size of these panels i think you're going to see detail in there that you just can't appreciate in a traditional comic format oh yeah oh yeah this is a lot of detail in those old kirby um stories and uh justin it was always good about you know fleshing it out as opposed to some anchors who believed in erasing what they don't want to do. <laughs> we've, had, we've had that discussion on many no occasions name, as please. well. <laughs> and, and we've named names in the past. We'll leave it. We'll yeah. let it go this time, though. I think if you listen uh, to this show, you know who we're talking about. Oh, yeah. Oh, absolutely. Oh, yeah. And, you know, it just I don't want to belabor that. But And Scott and I have gone over this on many occasions. But if you look at some of his... If, if you look at his career, you could see the man actually was a very talented artist, and he did some really great stuff when he slowed down and took the time to do it. Oh, I agree. Yes. I, I know what you're saying. If you haven't already, uh, Mr. Hendrick, I would highly recommend there's a, a, a really good book uh, about that gentleman called The Thin Black Line, um, which I'll, 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 I'll cop to it. Probably nobody on this show dumps more on him than I do. But it's because I've come to realize that the guy wasn't a hack, that he was actually an incredibly talented artist that unfortunately just kept shortchanging himself all the time for whatever reasons, usually for time. Yep. Um, but his his style was actually incredible. It was reading that book that really gave me a, a better appreciation for him. So I've gone out, of, I, I try to go out of my way now that when I do see really good examples of his work. I try to point those out more than I just continually blast all the, all the shortcutting that he did. Yeah. Um, I read I uh, the uh, there's a Superboy in the Legion of superheroes. Um, one of those big limited collectors edition books. Yep. The um, wedding of uh, karate. Wedding kid and... That's it. That's the one. No, no, it's, it's, it's lightning lad and, uh, and, uh, Saturn girl. Saturn girl. Okay. That yeah. I, I read that for the first time recently, even though I've had it for years, I've been kind of holding it in reserve because it was the one story I'd never read of the Legion, you know, of, of that era of Superboy and the Legion. Anyway, um, Coletta inked that one and it's beautiful. Absolutely beautiful. So, yeah. First time <laughs> I saw his artwork with his was Daredevil's number two, three, and four on Joe Orlando. And I thought those were good. And mm -hmm. when I was reading the uh, Giant Man uh, Masterworks a while back, there's a Bob Powell uh, story he inked. And I thought, wow, this is actually quite good. Um, better than some of the other inkers who I like better generally, because it seemed like there was a different inker every issue. And they were like, right. we're getting Giant Man out of here. You know, Bob Powell, if I... Bob Powell was was doing that, and then he just left Marvel when 
Giant Man did. I don't know. That was an odd thing. Bob Powell mm-hmm. at Marvel. But that's a whole nother, nother story. <laughs> so, so you can get back uh, to this story. So, I, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm disappointed to find out that, that you were uh, due to circumstances and we all, you know, people in our uh, age range know that the, you know, before the pre-comic book store uh, pull list days where, you know, you had to just get whatever books were available to you. And, you know, you'd skip an issue occasionally, uh, you know, not because you wanted to skip it, but just because it, for whatever reason, was never available at your particular newsstand. Uh, But I'm disappointed to find out that this is one of the ones that you uh, were not able to uh, get in that era. Yeah. Uh, Me too. (laughs) Now, out of curiosity, the books that you did obtain then, do you still own those? Uh, A majority. Um, I had a friend, he was a, a kid who got me involved in comics. We would, um, I would lend me, lend him mine. He would lend me his. Then I started buying a lot of comics. He stopped buying a lot of comics and just kept borrowing mine. And <laughs> I got most of them back. Not Spider-Man number one. Uh, you know, I, I can pretty much give you the list. I'm not going to give you the list, but uh, you know. <laughs> That it all came to an end one time when I, I went over to his house. There was that issue with the new giant man. Remember the, the big blue thing on the uh, helmet that he put up on top of that? Yes. And I saw it lying on the floor of uh, the room he, he was in. I said, oh, I said that, that's my comic. He goes, no, that, that, that's my comic. I picked it up and I, my name was written in it. Because <laughs> <So, laughs> I used to write my name in it. And I said, oh, that, I said, oh, oh yeah, right. I guess it is yours. And Oops. that was the end of the, uh, I mean, we were still friends and everything, but we didn't, I didn't lend him my comics anymore. I let him read them at my house. So I missed a bunch. But the only Fantastic Four between the whole Kirby run after I got going was 5, 13, and 25 are the only three I missed. Hmm. That's the Red Ghost in the first part of the thing. The Hulk. Hulk story. Now that one I wound up, in the annual, I guess the year later, but when they reprinted uh, FF 13 and Marvel uh, collectors classics, I missed that too. So I didn't read that until it was reprinted in like that fantastic Four 35 cent comic thing that they put out in 1974. I think it was remember when they put out, they had like different giant sized fantastic four when mm-hmm. they were doing all those. Right. Different right. Yes, so it, oh, I love the giant size issues. It took me 10 years. To, I mean, always wanted to see the Red Ghost and the Fantastic Four Inc. by Steve Ditko. And I finally did, but it took 10 years. So I, it, it can be annoying. But yeah, here we go. It was a good story. It was, it, hey, oh, here's another thing. The lettering. If this story was lettered by the same guy who lettered the Superboy story, just imagine how <laughs> what it would have done to this. Artie Simic <laughs> is one of my very favorite letterers. It's, yeah, it's, I does a better splash page. I remember. I, I don't know why, but for some reason, it always reminds me. Anytime I see anything with Artie Simic, I remember. You know, in in the early seventies, he passed away, and I remember reading about it in Stan's soapbox and. You know, I, I, at the time, I didn't even have an appreciation for who he was, but I, I just remember reading his little uh, obituary in there and being so saddened by it. And then that's yeah. what I always, for whatever reason, I always think of that when I see his name on books. Well, that's that's kind of nice. Um, that's that's good to hear. Of course, his daughter was working there for a while too. 
And and I remember, I couldn't tell you what book it was, but I know we covered a book and we had seen the name Simic and we said, oh, it's got to be, you know, that, that's got to be his daughter. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's nice that she went into the business too, at least for a stretch. Uh, you know, I, I don't even know exactly where to go with this just because I think, uh, you know, I, I think my real appreciation of this is twofold. It's the artwork and the little, that little bit of history we get for Doom. Yep. Other than that, it's silly. And again, if I was 10 years old and reading this, I probably would still enjoy the heck out of it. But as, as an, an elder statesman looking at it, those are the two things I look at <laughs> that I can truly enjoy. Otherwise, I mean, there's things here where, where you know, Doom wasn't developed yet. And even, even the Fantastic Four wasn't developed yet enough to the yeah. point where, like, you, you wouldn't let Sue surrender herself. You wouldn't right. go back in time on, on Doom's command. You also wouldn't even agree, oh, I'll come on your ship and, like, promise not to attack you. It's like, you know, that's a bunch of crap. <laughs> you know, I'm not, there's no way I'm doing that. Can I just say one thing? It, sure. Also, also, how is it that Doom doesn't realize that Sue is invisible and can, you know, <laughs> blow the thing up at the end for him? I mean, he's a genius. He's She's invisible. So, yeah. That was just too easy and out there at the end. He's he's done enough research that he's got his little figures at the beginning of the of the uh, story, so it's not like he doesn't know who these people are. Yeah, right. I, I also I, I got a kick out of the uh, the vulture in the first page. I, I could do a little with a little bit of coloring job on him because uh, his body you know is gray and his head is just red. Me, I loved that because it oh, reminded yeah, me of that. two things. It reminded me. It reminded me first of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs when the, the queen is down in her dungeon and everything and she's plotting with, you know, the potions to become the old hag and all that. You know, she had her little, I think it was a raven or something. And then in, I think it's the very first of the Fleischer Superman cartoons, the the villain with the uh, the electrothanasia ray had a had a pet I think it was a vulture or something like that too. yeah 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 I, see, I know what you mean All right, so do you guys have any any other comments on this or should we get to the rating uh, um yeah I'll, I'll leave I'll save my comments for the rating portion <laughs> I guess the fact that the helicopter can you know capture the Baxter building is a little silly. <laughs> oh, absolutely. Yeah. That's, but, you know, what are you going to do? <laughs> I, I, I guess I forgot that Dr. Doom ever used a helicopter. You know, there's so much, you know, they've gotten so much mileage in recent times, you know, with the memes and everything, making fun of, uh, of Thanos's Thanos copter in the old uh, Spidey super stories. But here's, you know, Doom with a Doom copter. <laughs> I, I don't remember having heard any mention of this. I'd completely forgot he ever used a helicopter. So, and apparently it's some sort of jet helicopter too. Yeah, because he took it from Latveria all the way to New York on one tank of gas. <laughs> well, it's, it's, thankfully he wasn't about... driving in today's area. He couldn't have afforded it. <laughs> well, he, he he hits some sort of like turbo boost or something. It says at one point, and it and it leaves like a jet stream behind or something. I'm trying to find that panel, and I'm not seeing it here. But yeah, there was. Oh yeah, here it is. Uh, next to last panel, page seven. It and and it says then with a sudden unexpected surge of rocket power, the helicopter blazes through the sky. <laughs> I love it. Yeah, but it's at an almost unbelievable speed. 
Yes. <laughs> mm -hmm. What I just noticed for the first time on the next page, on page eight, the first panel, Doom is sitting on his throne and he's petting a, a, a looks like a tiger. Right. Yeah. Next. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And, and he threatens that. them with the tiger. As oh, he says, uh, says uh, you're wise to restrain yourself. Uh, fast though you may be, my little pet here is faster. <laughs> so he's saying if they tried to attack him, that the tiger would take yeah, them sure out. That, yeah. I read that. It just didn't register. He's not wearing a cape in this story. He is capeless. Mm. It's more like a tunic, I guess. Ah. Yeah. And you get to see a lot more of the top of his head. Yeah, well, that's where that's where it gives me the impression of the, uh, you know, the man in the iron mask, which I right. guess is what inspired his character to begin with. Even uh, even in Fantastic Four Annual Number Two, I think it's very inspired by that particular, uh, at least appearance wise. And uh, there's this part here where uh, when they first dress up as pirates, I think Johnny says, "Oh, I feel like Errol Flynn." So I think you know they're showing an appreciation for the old, uh, the old movies and the old classics. Yep. Uh, and and I certainly share in that yeah oh i see that so, yeah yes ma'am yes sir you so can. i guess I'll, I'll i'll hit on this one and say uh you know i really like this cover a lot and that's that's why i just assumed that you had homaged it at some some point uh it it, it does it really does a good job as far as I'm concerned. I mean, there's probably a little bit too much in the way of dialogue, but I can get by that. Uh, the shot of Doom actually is probably the most impressive shot of him in the entire book is on the cover where he looks uh, menacing. Yeah. Uh, he's, you know, he's, he's taken center stage, but the Fantastic Four are all, you know, fairly represented. They're smaller, but they're all, you know, front and center in, in, the, uh, in the bottom. And each one of them is, you know, given their moment and they're really putting it in a position, you know, Sue is saying, I must get in there to save them. So I think, you know, on a rare occasion, they're giving her for the cover purposes and even in the story, a chance to be, you know, a, a meaningful member of the fantastic four, which sometimes they fail to do in, in early stories. Oh yeah, much so. The, the artwork, I, I think the artwork, you know, for this era is absolutely gorgeous. It's, uh, you know, it, it Kirby, I think, you know, as time went on, by the time we got to like the Galactus trilogy, he really had kind of like sharpened up the images a little bit. Uh, but I think this is really well done. It's dynamic in an era where not every comic artist was dynamic. Uh, and, he, you know, he's got a lot of detail in the panels. Uh, the storytelling, I think, is absolutely impeccable. Um, so the, the artwork, I'm, I'm, I'm going to say an A plus on the artwork. I really can't fault it in any way. Uh, you mentioned earlier how the human torch is, is drawn. And I, I think in this era, they drew him much more like the uh, golden age torch where you didn't see his facial features so much. And right. I kind of like that look, uh, you know, overall, like I said, I just, I'm, I'm ready yet for an A plus on the artwork story is a little contrived in parts and silly. Uh, but it, I have to give it points just for introducing Dr. Doom, uh, I'm, uh, because I'm going to pump it up for the Dr. Doom introduction and for just giving you that little glimpse into his background that makes you want to know a lot more about him, I'm going to, I'm going to say a, a B plus on the story, even though it is incredibly silly. And I'm going to just give this book for cover, for artwork, and, and story combined as along with its historical value. I'm going to just give it a, an A. 
All right. How about you, Scott? Um, I have no sentimental attachment to this one. I, I know I've read it at some point in the past because when I was a kid, I had one of the, you, you remember the, the paperback um, collections that they did of like fantastic, early Fantastic Four and early yep. Spider-Man. I, I had those when I was a kid and I, I just absolutely devoured those books. Yep. So I know I must have read this at some point. As a matter of fact, I know I did because when Paul, gave all all he told me was the issue number he said fantastic four number five and i said and something clicked and i said oh god is that the one where they go back to blackbird blackbeard's treasure so i i must have remembered at least that much of it but uh i i have to be honest oh i i just think this one's so dopey i really do it's i i love this early era of fantastic four don't get me wrong but th this is like that one issue where i'm just like oh it's it's just it's very cringeworthy to me um but anyway uh as far as the grades go i'm not crazy about the cover um there's nothing wrong with the art or anything it, it's entirely the way it's staged it it just I don't know. It just doesn't visually appeal to me. It's uh, it's, you know, it's, there's no symmetry to it. The, you know, the, the FF who are the heroes, they're, they're all super tiny and it just looks odd. The only, the only part of the cover I really like is, is the center with doom. Um, but even that's a little bit odd just because of the way it's colored and everything. Um, so yeah, no, I'm not real big on the cover. I'm not, I'm actually going to go, I think a C minus on the cover. I, I think it could have been a lot better. I, I don't know. Um, I mean, I wasn't alive at this time when this was out, but you know, if I had been, I, I don't know if this cover would have been enough to grab me with this particular issue. It's, it's, it's not one I even really remembered um, what it even looked like. So not all that big on the cover. Um, the interior art, however, is a completely different story. I think the interior art is beautiful. Um, it's hard to grade Kirby because although I, I know that there's later Kirby, I like a lot better than this and everything um there's absolutely nothing wrong with this it's it's really nice so it's it's hard to even kind of grade it on a curve type of thing um but i i think i just say an a only because i know that there's stuff later by kirby that i really liked better than this so you have to leave room for a better grade so i'll just say an a straight up because I, I really do dig it i i think it's fantastic i i'm looking again you know on a quick scan there's there's not a single panel or figure or anything anywhere that I, I have any issues with or, or look at and think it's wonky or anything i i, I think it's a, you know incredibly well drawn book on uh, the storytelling is just you know it's it's unmatched um it really all comes down to the story in this one um i just i i think it's really i love the little moments you know the the typical ff moments when you know they're arguing with each other in their headquarters some of that stuff. I love Doom's origin. I, I, I can only imagine that this is what saved this character from just winding up on the scrap heap of history is that although the story, frankly, I don't think is very good and, and his showing in the story, I don't think is very good. I think it's the intriguing insight into his backstory, even though it's just these couple of panels, it's just enough to make you think, that's cool. There's, there's something more to this guy that that's worth exploring. I, I think that's, you know, that's the hook in this one uh, as far as Dr. Doom goes. So, you know, for that, I would, I would bump it up a little bit in the grade, but otherwise the story, I just, I'm sorry. I just, I don't feel it for this one. It, it's just, it's a little too silly for me. 
Um, but I also kind of like that in the aspect of, you know, people, people really talk up this era and people really, you know, there's often very uh, negative comparisons with what DC was doing at the same time. And I think this is a wonderful example of, you know, not everything that Marvel was doing was magic and not everything that they were doing was necessarily so much far beyond what DC was doing at the time. This is a nice little, uh, you know, exhibit a of sometimes they could do some pretty dopey silver age stories too. So, you know, in that aspect, I kind of like it. So um, story-wise, I I think I've got to give the story uh, I'll say a D plus because I, I, I really do think it's kind of dopey, but um, you know, overall as an, as an overall issue, I do think it's, it's stronger than the sum of its parts. And, uh, and I'll, I'll say an A minus cause it's still worth reading. It's, it's still, you know, it, it contributes historically, you know, it is doom's first appearance and everything. And like I say, there's just enough of a hook to this guy that you can kind of see where, uh, you know, they, you know, Stan or whoever thought he was worth exploring more, bringing him back. He was more than just a, a one-time, one-note villain. And uh, and I always love the idea of the of the time machine actually being this time platform. That that's actually cool. Uh, I don't really, you know, time machines are typically some sort of tunnel or device or car or whatever. But in this play, in this case, it was just, you know, it was a thing they stood on and it dissolved around them and they wound up where they were. I, I always thought that was kind of neat. So yeah, that's my thoughts on this one. Fun, but dopey. <laughs> okay. Well, I guess I'm, uh, I would, um, fantastic the cover. Not a big fan of the cover, I'll admit. I kind of agree with a lot of what Scott has to say, plus the fact that it's, you know, a lot of gray background. Looking at the back of my omnibus here, and I noticed that, you know, a lot of the Kirby covers in the early days are not the best part of the book. I love number four, and that's the one that got me started. But uh, until you get to the Impossible Man of the Hulk, I'm not crazy about most of the other covers. I like the, it's just there's too much going on and the main characters aren't big enough. It's right. not big drawn or anything, but I'm, yeah, I'm just not crazy about a lot of the Kirby covers in the early days. Later on, he gets um, much more poster-like. The inside artwork, though, is absolutely tremendous. And uh, Joe Sinnott, boy, if he had been doing that from the get-go, not the get-go, but from this point on, that would have been something. Um, You're right about the story, but at the same time, this if this were a Superboy story, it would have been done in seven pages. And <laughs> there wouldn't have been much of the action, at least in this particular uh, story, there's you know, the action, you kind of see what's going on. And I just noticed on page seven that uh, Doom's helicopter has eyes and jagged teeth. Did you guys notice that? Oh, where is that? I, I got to see that. Page seven, panel four. <laughs> You're right. I, I just noticed as I'm paging through this with my little oh uh, wow comments. I Very did not notice that either, but that's, that's pretty cool. That. So it's like a shark. Yes. Yeah. 
<laughs> I'm bumping it up a grade now. That needs to be a Hot Wheel right there. They really do a great job with the uh, pirates artwork, uh, the costumes. And I always liked the, the kind of nutty color they used to have in those Marvel comics. As a, DC Comics, everybody was colored, you know, what they what they would be in real life. Whereas on, say, page 13, in the fourth panel, all the uh, pirates are dark blue and all the Fantastic Four characters are red. It's, it's like, why are they all the same color? It doesn't make sense. But it does make sense, you know, now. But as a kid, I remember thinking, this color coloring in these books are a little odd sometimes. But now I don't even think twice. Of course, the lettering is wonderful. Uh, Dr. Doom, we, we see his, his origin in three or four panels, and that's intriguing. And they didn't let Dr. Doom get uh, very stale, because the next issue was right back at him, which is where I first ran into him, uh, cozying up to Submariner and trying to make him into a worse of a bad guy than he was at the time. But, uh, yeah, so let's see. Cover, C, uh, artwork, A+, plus because it, it, it's, as great as Kirby's artwork got during the Galactus era and all that stuff, it seemed like a lot of the times there was detail that wasn't really there. It was just a lot of action. But here you get a lot of, uh, uh, oh, I don't know, people roaming the streets in Blackbeard's time and... Uh, just, just a lot of uh, more detail than Kirby got into later in his career. And I don't mean way at the end. I mean in the middle of the Fantastic Four run. And story-wise, I'm not up, as upset about the Blackbeard thing, but I can <laughs> understand that why that might be a problem with you. Um, it, it reminded me of kind of like the kind of Atlas stories they were doing back then. They hadn't, hadn't really figured out how to do superhero stories and so they did like an action story and threw the Fantastic Four in. I, I would always like the later issues where the bad guy would, would spend at least a panel, at least a panel, at least a page talking about what he would do uh, once he became king of the earth. And they would have all these panels, <laughs> of, you know, just like, just like it would be in one of those monster grotto from the, 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 uh, the lagoon or some type stories. And then, of course, the things would never come to pass because the Fantastic Four would stop them. But uh, it was like they were kind of shifting over. You could almost see the shift over from the monster comics to the superhero comics in the, at least the first 10 or 12 issues of the Fantastic Four. So, yeah, I'm, I'm sorry I didn't get to read this one until about two years after it came out. But at least I was still a kid then and, and enjoyed it. But I really loved the uh, actual origin of Dr. Doom in that Fantastic Four annual that this was, which is where I first saw this. So overall, I give this a issue an A minus. Oh, story, story is about a, a B minus. Artwork, A plus. Issue, A minus. Cover, C. Lettering, A plus. And coloring, <laughs> I give it an A too, because I like that crazy coloring. All right, that's fair. Uh, so that's that's going to be it for our two books. I want to thank you for making the time to come on with us tonight, Fred. Yeah. This has been an absolute pleasure. Uh, thank you, and thank you to yeah. Mrs. Hembeck for making the time to allow you to do this. Yeah, and helping and, and for helping you get started. signed in. Yes, <laughs> <That's> my troubles. <laughs>
but this this has been great and uh you know i hope i hope you enjoyed it half as much as i did no it's fun it's you know i don't get to i obviously don't get to do this with lynn uh so you know not much chance to talk about comics much these days so it's fun to do once in a while i'll see you in three years no, I'm just kidding. <laughs> well, believe me, when you get sometime. the itch, you let us know, and, and we'll, okay. we'll make the time for you. Absolutely. No question. This, Like I said, we this want, was a blast. We want you to pick the books. We want you to pick the books next. So you pick okay. the books that you would like to cover next. That, that's what we should do. Okay. I, I can, I'll, I'll, I'll give you six months. I'll be back in six months. How's that? I'll give you guys. You guys can breathe for a while, and then I'll, I'll come up with a Marvel, <laughs> come up with a DC. That would be great. I'd, I'd love right. that. Thanks again. Uh, again, it's been an absolute pleasure, and I really appreciate you making the time. Oh, and, that's uh, fun. It's fun. Thank you for everybody who listened to us. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did, and we'll see you next week. Thank you so much for listening to our show, and we hope you'll continue to join us each and every week for more good old-fashioned comic book back-issue awesomeness. You can contact Back to the Bins to leave feedback, comments, questions, suggestions, and criticisms via email at bins at two truefreaks.com or by joining the Back to the Bins group on Facebook. Back to the Bins is a proud affiliate of the Two True Freaks Internet Radio Network, which you may find at www.twotruefreaks.com. Two True Freaks is a registered trademark of Demanzo Corps of Milan, Italy. All rights reserved. Please take a moment to stop by the twotruefreaks.com site and check out their many other fine podcasts, won't you? Thanks, and we'll see you next week.